right, everyone. Uh, I'm here with Justin Brown. Justin and I uh, worked together in a previous previous life. We both worked for a company in the AEC space. Uh, we've since gone on in different directions in our career. Uh, so I'm really excited to have Justin on here in our first episode. Justin, welcome. Welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, Glad appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so I don't want to do it. I don't want to do our listeners a disservice by describing your career, but you have a fascinating career, a ton of different experiences, buying in all different parts of the AEC space and beyond that now into batteries. So, Justin, why don't you tell us how you got started in supply chain? Sure. I, I think to start with the beginning of it, you know, um, classically just trained as a mechanical engineer um, and started my career out with a, uh, a global electric motor manufacturer. And, you know, the beauty of that position when I started my career was that they did everything from A to Z. So, you know, all of the internal castings, uh, metal windings, wiring, finishing, painting um, was all done in-house. And so that was a really good way to kind of get um, involved with production from start to finish. And of course, obviously the procurement of goods was was part of that big position. Um, you know, from there I transitioned into uh, working for a global uh, capital equipment manufacturer related to uh, really pollution control and the printing industry around, um, you know, flotation drying equipment. And um, one of the cool aspects of that position was um, having started with manufacturing experience in that role, saw an opportunity within our supply chain, particularly around our stockroom to start with, a way to optimize the department and use some of the lean and Six Sigma principles that I learned in engineering and applying them into supply chain. Um, and so that uh, opportunity with that company uh, where I was really working for uh, around 16 years uh, between its uh, acquisitions, divestors, and purchases by purchased by a different company a couple of times over um, allowed me to weave my way into procurement with, again, that uh, philosophy of using data to manage the supply chain and pulling in some of those lean principles to the supply chain world. And, um, you know, eventually was able to get into a role of being a, um, a commodity lead for around 300 million in spend in North America, um, which is where you and I had worked together. So. Wow, that's that's exciting. So uh, if you don't mind pulling on that a little bit. Um, so it's it sounds like you started out with a technical interest being in engineering and then you saw an opportunity to make things better in supply chain. And how did you go about seizing that opportunity? And what did that look like? Well, I think. You know, one of the strengths, I think, of using a data position is that it takes all of the emotion out of um, the decision-making process, right? And when you manage with data, um, you have a better ability to correlate that back into the financials, I think. And, and to use that data in terms of um, stock levels for, you know, what's the probability of selling something versus uh, the ability to, to look at the variations in lead time and stuff, right? And so when you start to look at the analytics of supply chain, um, a lot of it um, really can be utilized to, to, I think, manage the supply chain in a better, more direct manner to be able to, first of all, set a gauge to measure where you're at and, and to, so you can measure yourself, right? Again, taking that Six Sigma theory, if you want to say, and then using those same analytical principles to do problem solving within supply chain. And, awesome. I, and I think, you know, I think when you look at it today, um, you know, supply chain is, is is becoming even more data driven as data sources are are able to be pulled up front and center into into a centralized system. So, awesome. That's that's fascinating. How uh, how were you received when you first took this data driven approach when you went from engineering to supply chain? Was that well received or did you have an uphill battle? 
I think the big, you know, one of the big challenges is um, you can never stock enough, right? So I think a lot of the, some of the regimens that I've, I've gotten experience with, right, wanted to maybe stock at levels that um, made them feel comfortable. And, you know, the risk is that, we, you know, you, you risk obsolescence, you risk the, the financials of having cash sit on shelves. And, and I think that mantra, right, from, from managing by gut instinct to managing my data um, was probably the biggest challenge with, with some other people, you know. And then obviously, um, you know, when, we, when you get to the granularity of, of working with your supply base, you have to pull them along as well. So I think it's a combination of, we'll call it, maybe more classically driven approaches to reorder advice planning um, as well as, you know, so internal as well as bringing your suppliers up to speed with, with new ways to do things. So it's not just getting the company on board with the data-driven approach. It's also getting the suppliers on board, making sure they're communicating the right information, that sort of thing. Exactly right. And, and even something as simple as getting suppliers involved, you know, we, we did a, a physical annual inventory that involved, you know, almost all of the employees at the company. And when we look at the vendor managed inventory as one example, right, bringing those suppliers in to help participate in that, help to send the message around, boy, that I brought that stuff in and you haven't used it. How can I participate to help you become more successful? Um, you know, so just little things like that. The engagements with suppliers can be, you know, both data driven. How can we connect each other's data? You know, you have my forecast. I have your planning for how you're going to replenish. Um, as well as just uh, even on site, right? Um, whether it's doing lunch and learns or having them, like I said, in my case, getting involved with the cycle counting so they could help participate in seeing the stuff that, you know, maybe was E&O that they had brought in originally um, yeah. or put in 10 places within the plant, right? Those types of things. Yeah. So how important are relationships in these data-driven, is there still a place for relationships in your opinion? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think the center, at least in, in my world right now, um, being a little bit more tech space, um, for me, it means probably being a little bit closer to also the IT team in some instances, right? So I think as we shift, um, you know, from what may have been in the past uh, conversations with um, the salesperson, right, the sales lead for the supplier, um, bringing in more people within the organization and some of them that may be more tech driven to help us look at the best ways to connect our data um, to make each other more efficient, right? How can we, how can we share information to become more efficient with each other? And, and certainly there's companies that are making that happen as well. Um, you know, supplier portals and stuff like that. Yeah. You, you highlight something else I've been interested in lately and that's the buying team. Uh, um, a lot of times in sales, I think we have a tendency to oversimplify things. You have to find the right person, that influential person inside the organization when really you have a team of people that are influencing the decision and, at least in my experience, there's usually not one person that's making that decision. Um, can you talk a little bit about collaboration internally on your side? What, is, what does that look like? What do suppliers need to know when they're trying to collaborate with a, te with a buying team? Um, I mean, if, I guess this could be maybe answered a couple of different ways. Um, you know, I think the first thing from a personnel standpoint, and this is no secret to management, right, or leadership, is, is to make sure that, um, you know, you have people working in areas that they're the most interested in, right? So, so first thing is to try to, again, classically find out what, what would be the core competencies of these people um, so that you're putting them in a position to manage the commodities that would be the most interesting to them. Um, and if you can gain some technical expertise in the process where you've got somebody maybe transitioning from another department that has that technical background, how can you leverage that to help you out? 
Um, and the other thing too is, um, you know, we try to, even though we've got a, a global procurement organization, we try to participate um, heavily with the global team. And, um, and I think that's important too. When you think about internal management, a lot of times it's very easy for, um, if you're seated at headquarters or you're in North America, um, to spend a little bit less time with your global entities. And what I've learned over the years is that those global entities um, with so many goods coming from overseas can become your strongest partner. Um, and so, so spending as much time as possible with them, um, I think is really important just to continue to, to um, you know, as you disseminate ways you wanna manage the supply chain globally to create some standards. Awesome. And when do you start to integrate suppliers into that team when you're, you have a special project that you're evaluating and when do you start to bring certain suppliers into that process and what does that look like? Uh, so, you know, where I'm at right now, you know, we have um, a relatively short list of what we'll call critical suppliers. And so when we look at the top 15 or so suppliers, we're, we're able to um, integrate them into some type of a weekly dialogue. If it's, if, even if it's just one-on-one -on -one with a buyer, if not an entire team, um, and so I think what we've done is just we've set up, you know, we've set up a ways to do a reoccurring meeting, have a, a core agenda for that um, and split those meetings out according to, you know, which experts need to be in those calls, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. And so I think I think, first of all, it's matching disciplines and it's the same opportunity that we're looking at from the customer side too. the closer I can get to the source of supply or ordering from our customer, you know, the more transparent I can be. Um, to take out a layer between our customer and the supply side on our, on our side. And I, and I think that's, that's also a, a different angle, uh, which can be strategic. And I, and I talk a little bit about that and, you know, uh, with my team is, is, um, you know, how can we become more strategic for our customer? And I think that means making, making sure we realize that our customers are also, um, we're also suppliers to our customers. So as we look at how do we want our suppliers to treat us, how can we incorporate what we're doing and saying we would like to have to make sure our customers are getting that same feeling when they come to us as, as a supplier to them. That's extremely refreshing to hear Justin that uh, there's that that's that a lot of people are thinking about their customers. And I feel like if we could all work from that framework and we care about each other's customers and we'd be in a good spot. Um, that's really refreshing to hear. Um, so, uh, Appreciate you giving us a, a, a history of, a, you know, how you got through supply chain, how you moved through supply chain. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, mind if we moved into some just rapid fire questions? Uh, this part of the segment, we're just trying to understand how have your behaviors changed over the years or do you still do these type of things? And it's just an opportunity for people that maybe don't get the chance to talk to someone at your caliber or maybe some of your peers to understand what are people thinking in supply chain when I'm doing these things. So uh, the first one is, do you perform your own research prior to making a buying decision? Uh, it's it's a mix. I mean, we have uh, you know I've got leads and on the commodity side of it, and so I think it's uh, it's a combination. If it's something strategic to the business, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to move a product, we're going to we're going to move a source of supply, we're going to move to a new country or a new region. Um, we bring in more more people for that. And what does that research entail? Um, well, right now, I mean, just being with remote, I've got a few different sources that we're using. Um, I have, uh, there's a global outside QC inspection firm that has a global footprint. Um, and they've become a resource to do two things. Number one is um, site visits and site audits uh, remotely because they have people dedicated to regions, um, you know, so of the, 
let's say 165 countries or something they operate in, we can typically get somebody landed to a site. The second is because they touch points with so many different companies doing these audits, is they, they've been able to actually come backwards and, and give us uh, 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 insights into potential companies that we could partner with, depending on what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think right now, just based on this, because of the, the COVID situation, travel restrictions, is a lot of that's been done remotely. And then, of course, the web, right? The web presence for us is becoming even more important than it was um, at any time in the past, um, simply as we're out researching for information. You led perfectly into my next question. It's how important is a company's online presence when making an initial evaluation? Um, I would say now uh, more important than probably ever before. And one, one, I, one area I can say that does need uh, some attention and emphasis are, um, you know, number one, the use of chatbots that are not actively tied to real people, um, <laughs> massively problematic for me. Um, and, you know, I think that's the first opportunity that companies need to realize that a lot of us um, on the procurement side that are looking, um, we're taking our time to look because we're interested in something you have. Um, and, and I know it's tough to weed out probably the lookers from the buyers, but the reality is, is that if we're not able to make contact with somebody directly, we typically have to move on. Um, and the other thing I've seen is the lack of, um, just to talk about supplier websites, is the lack of, um, of clear responses on those contact forms. Um, and I'm still seeing some major companies that use the, they will not, you know, don't offer a direct line of communication fill out this contact form, right? And you really never see anybody coming back to you in a lot of cases. And I think that that's opportunities that su- suppliers have to improve um, their communication. Um, that's good. That's that's really good to know. Um, and valid things, right? It's, it's uh, it, excuse me for projecting, but if, if I'm a buyer and I'm in the situation and I want the information, I want the information right then or pretty quickly thereafter, not two weeks from now when you think this is a good lead or a good opportunity. Correct. Um, Correct. What's the best thing a potential supplier has done to get your attention? Um, probably the same thing that we, we do when we're leading people, right? You start by trying to listen, right? Actively listening to what their needs are and, and, uh, and, and then, you know, seeing if you've got things that fit the request. I mean, it's some, it sounds so basic, right? But a lot of times we get suppliers that are, um, you know, really far into a pitch um, without really asking us what our needs are. Um, so I think that listening piece is important, right? Just to make sure that we're, we're doing the most important things together. So you mean you don't want a, a, a potential vendor to come in and give you their 50, uh, 50 slide deck and say, hey, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, exactly. Yeah. What's the worst thing some uh, some potential supplier has done to get your attention? Um, You know, one of the things that I've run into now twice, and so this is probably just recent, the last six months, is um, we've had two two different supplier engagements for different commodities um, that reminded us how large the business needs to be before we start working with them. Um, And, you know, we spend millions of dollars in the commodities um, that we opened our dialogue with, right? So we were well within the spend limits to bring stuff in. Um, You know, we're a private company, pretty relationship driven. Um, And I, and we like to think that we give our suppliers, you know, we were, we do supplier. I mean, we do a lot of the things that you want to do, which is, you know, grade your suppliers, talk with your suppliers, make them part of those metrics so they can understand how their performance is. Um, You know, and I think as, as, as part of that dialogue, um, you know, they have to be working with us too. So. 
Awesome. Uh, what traits do you look for in a strategic supplier? High level. I know you can't get into details, specifics. Just what from a from a company from a fit standpoint, what do you look for when you're evaluating a strategic supplier? Um, two things for me that are really important. Um, number one would be scalability, right? The ability to, if they become stronger partner, to be able to scale with us. Um, and the second is I, I'm a big fan of what I call value added resources. You know, can that supplier make us better at something that we're doing? We have, you know, for the company I work for, we have hardware engineers, software engineers, um, uh, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, and um, and we do everything from you know mechanical design of something through Android programming and stuff like that. And so when I look at the evaluation of a supplier, I think about number one, what could we do better as an organization? Um, and maybe you don't have a, the resources to cover, but what can they cover for us? Um, a simple example would be a lot of the suppliers we use for our PCBAs for electronics and stuff like that. They subscribe to different software to do risk analysis and risk reviews at the components level, right? And they're tied to some networks to be able to go and pull the end of life or look at the footprint of how things lay out on a board. And um, it's always good to have, I think, those types of, um, you know, some additional expertise where it can backfill your core competencies. You know, um, if we're strong on design, but we're not strong on this other part, how can I use a supplier to help backfill that? So looking at beyond just what's in front of you and how can you grow with us is, is something that you value a lot, right? Exactly right. How can you make us better in return? Awesome. All right, last couple on the rapid fire. Um, will you go back to the office full-time or stay partially remote? Uh, right now, hybrid. Hybrid? Yeah, hybrid. And a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, the global chip shortage, right? That's we're probably looking at over the next year, um, at least for our business has made us having to make a lot of pivots. And so I think for me to be able to get the most out of my team, we've seen that being able to split up that work-life balance um, has meant that we're able to get a lot more out of that team. Um, and because we are so global based and have uh, a lot of uh, procurement going on in different regions and suppliers in different regions globally, is um, some of us are, you know, we'll, we start early and we end very late. And I yeah. think that that hybrid model, um, we've, we've proven over the last year, at least at the company I'm with, um, to be successful. Um, we, we came back from COVID strong um, and have seen some of the highest uh, shipment months and, and some, some pretty good profitable months come in because of, of the ability for us to pivot globally on, into a hybrid model. Yeah, we're, we're hearing that quite a bit. Um, how will this affect how you evaluate new vendors and how new vendors can approach you? And I asked that in the context where, at least in the AEC space, people still rely a lot on trying to meet Justin, let me get Justin's contact so I can take Justin to lunch and then maybe take Justin to a dinner. And after I wine him and dine him five times, maybe we'll get an opportunity. That, that dynamic obviously has to change under this model. How has it affected how you evaluate new vendors so far? Yeah, I mean, for me, for, for me personally, I have never really been one to to be too entertained to, to start with. So it probably for me personally, hasn't really affected me a whole lot. Um, you know, I, I think we still have to have touch points um, that are gonna make sense. Um, so I, you know, I, I think we're still gonna try to do it, especially when we get to site visits um, where we're trying to evaluate staff, people we may not directly communicate with, but are gonna be integral to the success of, of a supplier making a product for us. Um, you know, I think that we, we will always pick up things in person that you can't pick up remotely. Um, 
and, and especially when it comes to getting on site with suppliers to be able to see what else they make, um, you know, how busy they look and, and things like that, that things they may not tell you about directly. So, Is it, is it fair to say that in a remote world, you'll have less lunches and less dinners? Is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we, we host a lot of suppliers on site. We're, we're, we're pretty good about trying to, to, um, you know, bring our suppliers in house. Yeah. So, uh, completely, completely understand. Um, Justin, this has been great, man. It was, uh, it was really great catching up with you again. It's been cool to hear some of the things you're doing uh, since we, since we last worked together and the new spaces you're in. Uh, one of the things we like to end with is um, something that what's personally made you successful. And at least I know that routines and habits are, if I didn't have them in my life, I don't know where my life would be. So I'm always interested in what's your best routine or habit that makes you successful. Um, I, you know, I can say um, pretty clearly, and it's going to sound a little bit boring, um, but minimum of five years, been very dedicated uh, at walking um, and, and, uh, I, my wife and I walk a lot. So when we talk walking, it's, you know, for us, it might be seven miles a day on average, which includes some of the heavy winters and then, you know, 10 plus miles each day on the weekends and stuff. And, and, you know, what's interesting about that is, um, and, you know, I've lived in a few different parts of the U S is, um, you know, walking is an amazing, I think underrated form of, of clearing your health mentally right? Um, you also, when you put on that many miles, you, you get to know your neighborhood, you get to know where you live a little bit more clearly, um, you know, and it's relatively easy. You don't really have to try to pull yourself to the gym. Um, but I've just found, you know, um, in, in my life, along with maybe some other lifestyle choices, that that, that walking is something that's, um, it's very hard to, to say you can't do, um, because it's not that difficult to get it going. And, yeah. uh, and like I said, we've stuck to that um, very, very heavily. So, have you, do you walk at the same time every week or does that fluctuate based on what you have going on at work? Um, we're pretty, we're fairly consistent, you know, I, I and I've, I've taken some of the, uh, the, the night calls on the road to walk and so, um, <laughs> and again, it sounds very boring, um, you know, amongst other things that I do that are more, much more exciting than that. The reality is, is that we have dedicated a lot of our time to getting out and walking. Yeah. Um, and like I said, it's amazing what I think it does for your mental and your physical health um, when you accumulate it over time. And and it's uh, it's really not that difficult to do. So. I'm impressed because I had a really good walking. I can have a good walking routine for about nine months. And then it seems January, February, it seems to fall off a little bit. And then I get back on March and April. And, and I'm, I live in a more temperate climate compared to you. So I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm very connected, not only at work, right, but I'm very connected. My hobbies are very connected hobbies. And so, you know, one of the things that I typically force ourselves to do, unless it's a, a, a night call that I have to have, would be um, um, to disconnect too, right? And I think that's the other thing is it, it gives you that time to, you know, balance your, spin your plates and try to manage them as best you can. Um, that one kicks off a couple, right? You yep. have conversations with your significant other and, and you get some exercise in and, and, uh, and you see new things that you maybe haven't seen when you drove by them. Absolutely. Great keystone habit walking. All right, Justin, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you. I can't thank you enough for being our first guest. Uh, one day we're going to play this at our 50th or hundredth episode and we're just going to shout you out all the time. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Have me back. We'll talk about data analytics a little bit more if you want anytime. I'd love that. Thank you, Justin. I think that's the space we can go off on. So.
Hey, All right. I'll get out of your way more next time, man. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.